Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I will be speaking with Stu Landisberg, founder and CEO of Grove Collaborative. Grove produces a line of sustainable and plastic-free home and personal care goods, and it closed a $1.5 billion combination with Virgin Group Acquisition Corp. 2 in June. Stu talks about how getting to cleaner home goods isn't only about ingredients, but rethinking everything down to whether or not they are a liquid or a solid. He also explains how much this innovation comes from the feedback loop Grove has with its DTC customers, but why the company's big push now is getting into more brick-and-mortar retail stores. He also reflects on Grove's decision to go for a SPAC deal now that the company is on the other end of it, and what advice he has for fellow CEOs fielding SPAC calls today. Take a listen. So Stu, first of all, just in case our listeners missed it, you did just release your second quarter earnings recently, and I wanted to congratulate you on being able to raise both your revenue and EBITDA guidance. But there were also some headwinds in the first half of the year. And so just at a high level, what can you tell us about how the market for sustainable and plastic-free home goods has been going so far in 2022? So I think if you look out over the long term, there are a number of changes in the way that consumers view the products they they make choices about that are inevitable long-term transformations that have to happen for the future of our planet, but also have to happen because of the direction of travel and industry. And, you know, we've seen that the decarbonization of our energy and transportation economy, you know, that's a trend that's well underway. The one that's a little earlier, but still well underway is the move away from industrial animal agriculture. And we think the third really big trend here, you know, those first trends are over a trillion dollars each. But the plastic industry, the single-use plastic industry, is also over a trillion dollars a year. And we look at that industry as one that is probably a step behind electric cars and plant-based meat, but equally inevitable in terms of the outcome, right? You can see you know, there's plastic waste in all of our blood, right? There's plastic at the bottom of the ocean, virgin snow in the Arctic, right? It's everywhere. And this is a problem that is only going to get worse. And so what we're seeing is, yes, there's some pullback from the pandemic when people overconsumed in our categories, right? We're, we're primarily a home and personal care products company. But more, I think, over the long arc, what we're seeing is that the thesis around plastic waste being a end of one issue in our categories is bearing out, right? Every retailer in the country is thinking about what is my strategy to get out of plastic. And Grove has positioned itself in a, as a market leader. And so even as the whole business, you know, we're pleased to be able to raise our top and bottom line guidance. But really where the growth is coming from in 22 and 23 is growth in terms of the, our retail distribution business, right? In Target, where we grew points of distribution by over 100%. And we've already said we expect to grow points of distribution by 300% this year, right? That's explosive growth in points of distribution. We've already announced partnerships with Meyer, Kohl's, Giant Eagle, and I'm optimistic there'll be some more in the future. Yeah, and you mentioned that you know trillion dollar TAM and how it's you know it's somewhat comparable to sustainable food and even EVs, but we've seen you know some of the ad- adoption a little bit faster in some of those areas. But as you mentioned, you know it's interesting for the pandemic, which I'm sure was a bit of a double edged sword for you because you did have a lot more people at home buying those home goods. But and I and I found it interesting, you know, during the pandemic, everyone expected that people being under pressure, they would gravitate more towards whatever was the cheapest on the aisle. But we did see actually increases in consumption of you know greener, more sustainable goods. And so you know just sort of what are you seeing in terms of the trend? 
landlines for consumers going green with their home goods and like who who are the people that are switching? So I think what we find is that plastic is a almost universal issue. 84% of the U.S. believes that we need to take action on single-use plastic. It's hard to get 84% of the U.S. to agree on anything these days. Right? <laughs> people are like, EVs, oh my gosh, 50% of people would consider an EV now compared to 84% on plastic waste, right? Our industry is a little newer, but one of the reasons why, you know, I think Richard was interested and why our SPAC was so successful and why I'm such a big believer in the company and the stock over the long term is, you know, this is an inevitable trend that's in the very early innings, but also one that has much broader adoption and acceptance than either EVs or plant-based meat or any of that stuff. So I'm I'm really excited for what's ahead. And I think what we see is that the trend line there continues to be exceptional. It's the highest growth part of our business. And also, you know, when you look at where our customers are, you know, our best zip codes over the years have been places like Plano, Texas, Topeka, Kansas, Lehigh, Utah. You know, we do as well in the suburban and rural parts of the country as in the major urban centers. We do as well in states that vote red as states that vote blue. This is really a brand built for everyone. And when you look at the size of our TAM, right, we have 100% conviction that the opportunity exists to build this into the most important company in our space. I appreciate you shouting out my hometown, Topeka, Kansas, by the way. <laughs> oh, wow. It's never <laughs> happened before. Love Topeka. I've actually been there. It's terrific. <laughs> and you also announced this month that you're expanding footprint in big box retailers like Kohl's, as you previously mentioned, and Target and finished last year in about 1900 retail doors. So just how are you prioritizing where you want to be next in, in terms of physical locations? So appreciate you acknowledging that this is this is something that's clearly going to be a value driver, both for the company and for shareholders. And it's something we have a lot of conviction in. And the reason we do is twofold. Number one, we see the benefit of marketing synergy and awareness synergy every time we open a new retail door. We have beautiful end caps. If you happen to be near a Meyer or a Giant Eagle or a Target, go in, check out the end caps, check out the seasonals in Target, right? Spectacular product that's creating awareness of Grove. And then of course, as we spend on TV, we have an amazing partnership with Drew Barrymore who's talking about the product a lot and through the traditional media funnel, which we really built to drive our direct to consumer business we get those benefits going in both directions, right? So we have a lot of confidence that that will continue to work. And when we show up to a pitch meeting with any retailer, and I should say we've talked to a number that we haven't announced yet, but that I'm excited to talk about in the future. One of the most compelling things I can say is, hey, we're bringing $100 million plus of cumulative investment to this brand. And that's well beyond what anyone in our space you know, with anything close to our assortment is spending getting their message out there. And it's because of the synergy of the online and offline business models, right? Not just are we able to leverage direct to consumer to bring really differentiated consumer first innovation and really lead the pack in terms of efficacy, sustainability, design, and affordability, but also to be able to say, hey, we're supporting it with a ton of marketing. And so that that allows us, I think, to be really successful. And for the retailers, creates a, you know, a, a partnership opportunity that's second to none in our space. My aspiration is not to be a couple billion dollar company, but there's multiple hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap in our space. And I think a lot of that is going to have to adapt to the trends that we're already sort of, we, that we are, we are, are squarely in our bullseye today. Right. And then just going off of that, direct-to-consumer is still a major part of your business, including through Amazon. So what do you think is the ideal balance between brick and mortar and DTC, both on your native platform and off? 
It's a great question. And DTC is where we grew up. It's an incredibly efficient way to grow an audience. You can test and learn and direct to consumer much, much more quickly than you can test and learn in brick and mortar retail. And the data that comes out of our direct consumer channel is maybe a hundred times higher fidelity than the data we get from our retailers, right? I mean, we know to the person what they bought, what their price elasticity is, what products they shopped with it, what incentives they respond to. If they liked it, what they rated it, did they rebuy it? How long between when they, I mean, the ability to, to play with all of the inputs there is incredible. And that leads to really differentiated innovation. At the same time, the opportunity in our category is massive in, in traditional distribution. You know, something like somewhere between three and 10% of home care purchases are purchased in the direct consumer channel. That means that, you know, let's call it 5%. We've built a market leading brand with hundreds of millions in sales, and we only sell it to offer it in a channel that one in 20 consumers shops. So the opportunity here over the next decade is, okay, you've built this incredible market leading brand, biggest assortment, best awareness, best efficacy, best reviews, most customers, and on and on and on. And we only offer to one in 20 consumers. There's a really obvious business plan here to say, great, let's drive expansion and play to win in traditional diversified retail, 19 and 20 consumer shop. And that's a 20X opportunity for our business. That's really about execution. Right. And I do want to get into the, the data side uh, in just a bit, but really on the dollars and cents side, uh, when it comes to products, you know, I imagine your consumers are much more willing to pay a premium for cleaner, uh, more sustainable packaging and all that, but more sustainable packaging is more expensive. So just how do you balance that and find the right spot in the middle there in terms of your, your costs and, and what, what the consumer is really ready for on the, on the sticker price? It's a great question because if we want to be as big as we as we think we can be, right? We want to compete with the big guys. You know, you look at Target, our hand and dish soap brands both cracked the top 10 in terms of conventional and national brands in the first year, right? If you look at our incrementality, it's better than any of those brands. So we have, I think, real ability to compete with the big brands. And the reason we do is we've been very deliberate in not pricing the product out of reach. And the way we deliver sustainable materials at a more affordable price point is through innovation, right? You can think about our hard surface cleaners, right? Glass cleaner, all-purpose cleaner, tub and tile, floor cleaner, et cetera. That business model has historically been a single-use business model, right? You buy a bottle, it's mostly water, you use it however many times, and then you put that plastic in your recycling. Turns out it doesn't actually get recycled, right? Less than 9% of all plastic you put in the recycling bin gets recycled. Plastic recycling is actually a lie and you just created forever garbage for your window cleaning. Our business model is one where you buy a zero plastic bottle, or I should say a, a zero single-use plastic bottle. It's glass with an unfortunately plastic trigger, like a plastic sprayer. We're working on a zero plastic sprayer. Haven't quite gotten it down yet. But zero single-use plastic bottle, you can use forever. And then instead of buying 24 ounces of blue glass cleaner, you buy a little one-ounce concentrate. And that one-ounce concentrate, of course, is zero plastic. You add the water yourself at home. You know, the 24 ounces you bought was probably 90 something percent water, I mean, definitely 90 something percent water. So you're actually getting a higher quality product with a lighter environmental footprint. And because of the innovation, we're able to charge less for it. And so that's one that's a win for the environment. It's a win for the consumer. And for us, you know, that's a classic razor, razor blade business model, right? You've got the reusable spray bottle, you're buying the concentrate refills. The razor, razor blade business model is one of the sort of classic high margin CP, that's a thing that works. And so it's really a win for us and for our shareholders as well. So we look for those innovation opportunities where we can over deliver to the consumer, over deliver from a price point perspective, and still make sure we're delivering, you know, 
50 plus gross margin on an aggregate basis. I know we weren't quite there this quarter, but you know, I'll say I'm optimistic we'll be there in the future. You know, we we do look to really deliver on those three things. And when we can, you know, of course that allows us to line up behind it and really drive sales. Yeah, you you touched upon it as well in term, in terms of the data side and how you crunch and utilize that data because Grove is in an interesting position in that it's a first mover in terms of providing these plastic free uh, alternatives to stuff that's out there and so I mean in theory you could just, you know, provide a sustainable and plastic free version of every single existing, you know, home product category, but you're also collecting a lot of data and adjusting your product development to incorporate consumer preferences. And so what have the consumers been telling you through that? I think what they've been telling us is there's a real reward for innovation. We've taken a number of steps that we didn't know how well they would work. And this is, again, the benefit of having direct to consumer. You know, I'll give you the laundry as a great example. You know, the laundry market is like $40 billion in the US. It's a massive market. And 80 plus percent of that is liquids, right? Liquid laundry detergent. But liquid, of course, has to be wrapped in plastic. It'll basically erode through any other material. So we created zero waste laundry sheets, kind of like dryer sheets, but they dissolve. There's no plastic in them. They're like totally water soluble, yada, yada. Super efficacious. It's always been a challenge. There are laundry sheets in the market that haven't been efficacious. So we developed these really efficacious laundry sheets, cost per use, totally reasonable. But we launched them on Grove.com first and in our app first, because we wanted to make sure that consumers would come with us, that consumers would respond to that. And the launch there was really performant, which was great, but we didn't have the right SKUs, right? We had the right product, but not the right fragrance, not the right uh, case counts, not quite the right design. And so over six to 12 months, you know, we launched more fragrances. We updated our claims to show the efficacy, right? Because efficacy is always the most important thing in fabric care. So after that year, we brought that target, uh, excuse me, that updated product to target. And now we have the only zero waste laundry sheet in target. And it's performing super well. And it's not a coincidence, right? So what I think we're hearing from our consumer is that they value innovation, but also you got to get the innovation right. Just sort of launching it and hoping it works. That's not a strategy, right? Launch, listen to the feedback, change the product, iterate, iterate, iterate. And then the consumer is excited to go with you on that journey, right? But just putting out an innovation and not taking feedback, that doesn't, that that's, you know, that's not a strategy for consistent, repeatable success. Right. And then moving on to the marketing side, you're competing against some huge marketing budgets from the major CPG companies. So how are you trying to be strategic with the marketing spend that you have? So one of the core pillars of our value creation plan is marketing efficiency. And you know, this is an area that where outperformance allowed us to raise our guidance in the second half. You know, we feel really good about how our media is performing right now, which I know is unusual in the current environment, but I think I think it speaks to the quality of our mix and the quality of our messaging, quality of our content. And the way we think about it on a competitive basis is basically, you know, we don't have to convince the world today. And we benefit from a lot of media we don't pay for, right? I don't have to educate most consumers about plastic waste because they see it everywhere. You know, I was interviewing a candidate for a senior role and I asked her, you know, why are you, why are you interested in this job? You seem a little bit overqualified. And she said, you know, I've been going to the same beach for however many years since I was a kid, and it used to be clean, and now it's full of plastic. How can I not take action on this problem, right? And I want to use my professional capabilities to solve this problem. It is important to me because my kids are not going to have the same experience I had. And, you know, who knows what the beaches will look like for my grandchildren. And so, you know, we didn't have to do any marketing to convince her that she shouldn't be buying single-use plastic. 
She just saw it. How do I convince people? You know, plastic, of course, is made from petroleum. How do I convince people that global warming is happening? I don't know. Wildfires, right? Like it, it's <laughs> these trends are, they don't take a lot of marketing. And because we're the only company in the industry, I should say this, the largest company in the industry, smaller companies, but the company in the industry, the far and away the loudest megaphone on these issues, you know, we can make clear that we stand for zero plastic. We get a ton of benefit from the fact that these are real problems that consumers have. And if that wasn't true, you know, we'd never break through. Number one. And number two, there's also just a lot of people with big, big audiences who, who care about this message, right? You know, Drew Barrymore came on. We approached her initially as a more of a commercial partnership, but she wanted to make an investment into the company because she believes, right? She understands. You know, same thing with Richard. You know, when I sat down with Richard in our SPAC conversation, we had offers from, you know, a number of high quality SPAC partners, including some that had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in committed capital for the pipe and at much higher prices. I think our highest price was say multiples of where we ended up pricing it and certainly multiples of where we're, where we're trading right now. But what Richard said to me first was convince me that you can solve the plastic problem. I know it's a big problem. Convince me that you can solve it. And that conversation where we sort of laid out the roadmap, you know, it left no doubt, I think, in either of our mind that A, this was a great partnership, but B, that if, if we are successful in continuing to execute against this problem, there's going to be plenty of value created for everyone. So people aren't raising their hand to go get on board with, hey, how do I sell more big, you know, petroleum-derived ingredients in a giant single-use plastic bottle, right? Like celebrities aren't raising their hand influencers aren't organically promoting that and so i just think it's a different it's a different era and we really benefit from you know that's what brand is you know, standing for the right things great you know i'm really excited to see all the different places this com company goes in the future but i do want to take things to a little bit of a backward looking point of view just for a little bit just because this is the spec insider podcast and so you know just going back and looking at the spac deal you initially announced with virgin group 2 uh, back in december when the, the market was already starting to turn a little bit against both spacs and growth companies still able to get to a close six months later and so just in general what was it like working through the process as the market got pretty stormy in the first half of the year so it's a great question because i think it speaks to why why people complete these transactions and you know grove had the ability to go public through an IPO. And we deliberately chose a SPAC because we believe that collaborative is the second word in our name. If you want to go far, go together. If you look at our category, right? Everybody understands that single-use plastic is a thing that needs to change, but not that many people understand that there's an option out there for them, right? You can look at 84% of consumers want to take action. How many people actually understand that there's an option, right? This is why growing awareness is so valuable for us. And being able to partner with Richard is an amazing one plus one is three opportunity. You know, he can get on the phone with the CEO of any company in the world. So if I'm going into a pitch with, you know, pick your retailer, you know, Richard, Richard can help with that, right? <laughs> the introduction to Drew came through Richard. He also has done you know, a ton of awesome media for us and with us and really helped us grow our reach. And so when I went through the question of how do we want to go public, I asked myself, you know, what's the best thing for the company over the next decade? And having someone like Richard and his organization in our corner was an invaluable opportunity. And because that was our goal, right? We could have raised money a number of other ways. We could have gone public a number of other ways. Because that partnership was our goal, you know, that set a really great foundation with Virgin. And I think allowed us to say, look, you know, good market, bad market, we know what we're looking for. 
And so we pushed through. And I think the other thing that we did is we chose what I think was a really, really reasonable price. And we had a number of offers that, again, were, were truly multiples of where virgins came in. And we priced the deal in a way that I think, or I should say, was intended to create real upside for shareholders. You know, I want our shareholders to be with us for decades, right? Uh, and I know the way that that's going to happen is by creating returns for them. And so we priced the deal in a way that even when the market moved on SPACs, we still felt, you know, if you compare us to the multiples of many other omni-channel innovative brands, you know, we're still at a bit of a discount, which is good, right? That's good. It creates opportunity for our shareholders. And so I think, you know, that combination of going through the transaction with the clear goal of a partnership in mind, not, hey, let's get the money, right? Thinking long-term. When you think long-term, beneficial for a lot of reasons. So that that partnership approach, which is totally borne out from an awareness and growth perspective for Grove, number one. And number two, you know, pricing the transaction in a way that that allows, it's not greedy, right? That allows shareholders to make money was the second element that I think was was really valuable in the in the process for us. And, you know, I should say, look, I don't, I can't tell you what the market will do tomorrow or the next day. And certainly no one's, no one's been prescient about, you know, I certainly haven't predicted exactly, you know, the way things would shake out, but I really do think that certainly our intention was to create a transaction that everybody could look back three years out, five years out and say, that's, that's the way it should be done. And I feel really good about the execution and partnership that we've had every step of the way. Yeah, and no, that was really interesting in terms of the in terms of what you were getting in terms of that the strategic relationship with Richard Branson and, and also the fact that you had other options, both SPAC and otherwise. You know, one thing that we did see, you know, earlier in the, I guess earlier in the SPAC cycle, we did see that there were certain SPACs that kind of no matter what were pretty much immune to to high redemptions. And uh, so purely on the financial side, I mean, uh, Virgin Group 2 did, uh, you know, was not able to completely dodge, you know, the high redemptions climate we're sort of in right now. But so just kind of with everything in mind, I mean, do you have any advice for other potential target companies that are considering SPAC transactions and have SPACs kind of knocking on their door uh, in terms of what to ask for, what uh, who to take more seriously and all that? Yeah, I would suppose I think that the three pieces of advice I would give are, you know, the redemption environment is crazy right now. And so you can't bank on anything. It's all mostly held by ARB hedge funds. And you know, those folks, whether they like your stock, or they don't like your stock, they're not, they're not really interested in the fundamental story. And so uh, you know, I was not surprised at all by our redemption number. And you know, I expect the stock to be volatile for a little while because of that, right? And we've seen some of these DSPACs you know, totally run on very modest volume because of the volatility, right? Run in both directions to be totally clear. But you know, thinking longer term is is what got us through the transaction. And I think that's what I'd really recommend more than anything, right? Think long-term and find a partner that has conviction in that. You know, Virgin put almost a hundred million bucks into the company through the transaction, right? So, you know, Richard didn't just show up and act like a partner. He also showed up with a huge check. You know, that allowed us to execute through the transaction with confidence. And so think that that combination of being clear about your why, thinking long-term, and making sure that there's a, a partner who isn't just you know bringing a bunch of words to the table, but also this is an economic transaction. There's a lot of shareholders, like a lot of a lot of individual investors involved, right? The sponsor should show up, in my opinion, with real cash. And you know, I'm really grateful that the Virgin folks, hundred million dollars, not a small check for anyone. And to be clear, it was like ninety something, it ended up being hundred. But mm-hmm. um, you know, that's not a small check for anyone. Uh, and so I'm I'm really grateful for that partnership. Um, I think, again, you know, 
I feel, and I feel great about it today. And I think if you called the folks at Virgin, they'd be equally excited. And, you know, we're only a couple months out, but I think tell a little bit about how it feels afterwards. Uh, and I think, like I said, I think we are hopefully on our way to, to the outcome I, early still, but on our way to the outcome where, you know, three, five years from now, we'll look back and say, that was a terrific and transformative deal for the company uh, and for VG2. Great. And, you know, and just to, you know, touch upon the SPAC side of it as well, too, just from your perspective as, as the company that has gone through it, I mean, do you have any suggestions for the SPAC side? I mean, do you think that there are some things that need to change with the SPAC structure or the process there? I don't have any specific advice because I do think every SPAC is different, but I think the general advice I would give is twofold. Number one, transparency was a real differentiator for us in terms of, because the process inevitably has twists and turns and bumps and nothing in SPAC land has been easy, right? We're not a company that put out a high in the sky forecast of, hey, maybe we'll grow by 500% in five, right? Like mm -hmm. we intend to do what we say and say what we do, right? Become a first class durable public company, right? Like that's our intention. And I know not everybody in the SPAC market acts like that, but having really clear and transparent dialogue was differentiating throughout the process. Number one. Number two, I think that cash matters, right? And so not every founder CEO will understand, hey, how do I make this a cash generative transaction in a challenging market where you can't count on low redemptions? But hopefully if you're a SPAC sponsor, that's something you're spending a lot of time thinking about, right? Because that's, that's you know, my expertise is how do I build the number one brand to change the world in the way I want to see it, which is to take the plastic out of HPC. I believe that's a trillion dollar opportunity globally. You know, there can be a trillion dollar company built in the space and I want to go build it, right? That is my job. That's what I get excited about. I'm not thinking about, hey, what is the way I like get cash out of this, right? Like I'm like, you know, the fire for me is let's go, let's go build that business, that inevitable brand in this massive category that people, that can drive real change. And that's, you know, I want someone who talks about raising money the way I talk about getting rid of plastic, right? That is the partner that I want. And I think you know, it's, sorry, I didn't mean to get carried away there, but I get excited, obviously. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think, an opportunity to really, to, if someone cares about that the way, you know, I know a lot of CEOs care about the missions of their companies, I have a, a belief they will drive results, right? Because the number, the first ingredient for me is always, you know, passion and hard work. Um, to driving those type of results. And it is harder today than it was a year ago or two years ago. Um, but now with a couple of months spent as a public company, has anything been unexpectedly easier for Grove or have you noticed anything being more difficult as a public company? I think the number one thing that's paid big dividends, dividends for us is we invested in really good financial and legal teams and systems beforehand. We have a great relationship. This is really boring with EY, our auditor, right? We love EY, great relationship with a really strong corporate counsel at Sidley. I've seen some SPACs that haven't been able to get their cues in on time or what. I mean, we've been doing on the flip side, right? Mock earnings calls for six quarters. And I think some of that was probably more preparation than we needed, but we really invested early in good practices around particularly financial compliance, you know, good practices, good human capital, good talent around the table. I think that's, it's kind of an unsexy thing, but it's easy to, to take for granted because if it's not working, gosh, I like, I can't imagine what that would be like. And so, I, you know, so far you, the investor relations, analyst communications, making sure we get our 
months and quarters closed on time. Feels good to be able to beat and raise. You only can do that if you have a good forecasting mechanism, right? All that stuff. It's an unsexy investment, but no matter how great your brand is and your financials are, if the street can't trust you, it doesn't matter. And so that's, I think that's a, it's a, it's an under the, you know, under the covers type investment that doesn't get the headlines, but it's a hundred percent necessary to achieve the kind of scale and, you know, shareholder returns that I, I ultimately, and I know we ultimately try to drive. Yeah. And then I want to talk more a, a bit about the supply chain issues. Everyone's been dealing with those sorts of issues, focusing on the supply chain, especially this past year. So how has Rove managed through those struggles? And what do you expect the rest of the year to be like in logistics? So we've managed through them with a real partnership orientation. And, you know, we were pleased that our gross margin was up quarter over quarter in the second quarter. And if you look at our guidance, you can see there's a huge reduction in burn forecast for the second half. We expect to cut burn by well over 50%, 2H over 2.1, um, which is just, you know, from my perspective, an incredible sequential improvement in profitability. One of the reasons we're able to do that is we have confidence in our margins. And so the way we've driven that is by having clear dialogues with our partners, right? Our partners care about our success. They know what we stand for. That counts, um, you know, number one. And then number two, I actually believe that the direction of travel on a number of the most expensive items is favorable. And I think that we, we've we seen, I would say, better outbound freight rates than we expected in some cases. Haven't really seen much relief in labor yet, but there are a couple of green shoots you know, in the supply chain that make me more, I'm not necessarily bullish about 2Q22, but by 2Q23, I think I'll be feeling pretty good about it. So, you know, we haven't baked in supply chain improvement, cost improvement really into our forecast, but I think there is an opportunity for things to get better over the coming years. And look, I'm a bit of an optimist, but that is, it's been a tough few years on the supply chain side for everyone. And I do think, I do think that we're starting to see some green shoots. Got it. And then what do you see as a, the most exciting new thing coming in your business in terms of sustainable materials? And how are you incorporating those? So this may be an unsexy answer. New materials often lack the infrastructure to be wildly successful. And I'll give you an example, right? There's, there's a lot of like potentially better recyclability plastics or bioplastics or something, but there just isn't the supply chain to actually make those effective. So what I see is really exciting is taking materials that are widely used and bringing them into our categories. Aluminum is a great answer, right? Aluminum, 95% energy recapture, something like 70% of the aluminum that's ever been mined is still in use today. Maybe it's even higher than that, right? It's an incredible material. It has some downsides versus plastic, right? Our aluminum bottles dent sometimes, right? You can't shape it and mold it, right? You don't get that like big display of plastic on the shelf, but it turns out I think the consumer is smarter than that now. And I think the consumer is coming with us and our aluminum products have sold quite well, but that's a material that's never been used really in home care and that we're bringing into the space. I think similarly, if you look in personal care, we have a zero waste personal care brand called Peach Not Plastic, which sells at Grove and on Amazon. Recommend folks check it out. Uh, shampoo, face wash, conditioner, deodorant, stuff like that. Kids and, adult, and adults, uh, my children are. Big, big fans of the peach shampoo bar. Green Star, terrific. Anyway, that is one where we basically took all of the actives in shampoo, took all the water out. So what you get in the shampoo bar is a much higher concentration of the things that actually you know, make your hair soft and beautiful and all the things you want. 
without a bunch of the plastic packaging. And so you're getting a better quality product than you were getting from your diluted bottled shampoo. And we're able to deliver it at a lower price because we don't have to ship that around, you ship all the water around. And we just package it in paper. And there's not a lot of shampoos, for example, packaged in compostable paper. Because of course, if it's a liquid and you package it in something compostable, that just that doesn't work, right? So this is an example of where we're taking, you know, packaging it in compostable paper. I mean, my gosh, recyclable and compostable. You know, that's not exactly blinding materials insights, but it's great business and it's great for the environment and it's great for the consumer. And so that's the type of insight that we look for is, hey, how do we change business models rather than try to introduce, you know, crazy new material in order to drive you know, fast, profitable and consumer centric success. Great. Well, this has been just a fascinating conversation and, you know, interesting because not a lot of SPAC targets are companies that I think the average person can buy something from them and put it on their shelf. But this is one that I think our listeners are going to be seeing out there more and more and hopefully already have in their, their houses. But, you know, and it is truly interesting. Call me a nerd. But every time you preface one of your answers by saying this is unsexy, it was like, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is good stuff right here. <laughs> and so uh, it's been a pleasure having you on and, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank oh, you. Such a pleasure.